Welcome to another edition of The Pactum. This is Mike Grimes, and I'm here with Pat Abendroth, and today we're going to be discussing the justification of Jesus. And I thought maybe, Pat, to start us off, uh, I could read one of the oldest Christian confessions that we have. I'm all ears. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Mike, I really like the sound of that. And if our listeners also like the sound of that, they should know that they're in really good company. Absolutely. God liked it so much that he included it in the Bible. He did, yeah. It's found in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Now that we know that that is actually a quotation from Holy Scripture, now that the secret is out uh, and our listeners know, let's go ahead and have you reread that. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Easy to remember because it's like 2 Timothy 3, 16. Super important. But 1 Timothy 3, 16. Would you go ahead and reread that now that we know where it's Absolutely. coming from? Yeah. So 1 Timothy 3.16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So, so as to help the early church remember some of the most vital aspects of the faith, they had this confession. It may have even been something that they put to music so that they mm. can memorize it and learn it and not forget some of the vital aspects. And maybe we should go line by line just to help everyone understand the gist sure, of it. Yeah. So we start with, he was manifested in the flesh, a reference to the incarnation, that the eternal son of God became a human being. Then vindicated by the Spirit, a reference to the resurrection, as we will focus on in just a moment. Seen by angels, so not only were there human eyewitnesses, but there are also uh, angelic eyewitnesses. Proclaimed among the nations, evangelism, not only to the Jews as their Savior, but to the nations as well. Thus, he's the Savior of the world, as promised. And then believed on in the world. So he not only was proclaimed, people did believe upon him for salvation. And then finally, taken up in glory, a clear reference to the ascension of our Lord Jesus. Simple and profound, a great summary yeah. of some vital truths. Yeah. But as great as that confession is, there is actually something wrong about it. I didn't say wrong with it, but to be provocative, there's something wrong about it. And what's wrong is that lots of Christians today don't know what it means. Yeah. Lots of Christians don't know uh, what even some of the basics of the faith are. So that's where we come in today, hopefully helping our listeners and helping believers understand some of these basics, one in particular, because it has huge ramifications for us. So I hope what we're going to do today, Mike, is vindicate the doctrine of vindication. <laughs> let's vindicate the doctrine of vindication. Maybe, you know, let's start by even talking about what does it mean for Jesus to be vindicated? What does that mean? You know, I look up the word vindication or to vindicate in the English dictionary, and it says the action of clearing someone of blame or suspicion, but what, what, how does that apply to Jesus? How is he vindicated? Maybe we can help listeners with that and apply that to the situation here. Well, I'm with you, Mike. I like to look things up in the English dictionary to start, even as a teacher, because 
we start out, we speak English. And so what is vindication? Well, it's true. If you're vindicated, you're no longer considered blameworthy. Uh, You're off the hook, so to speak. You're not guilty or not seen as guilty, but we can do better. Because in First Timothy 3.16, where it says vindicated by the Spirit, uh, you could translate it justified by the Spirit. Mm. Because the word actually is the word typically translated justified. This is where things get really important. It is the word dikaio, which is the same word that we would have translated, for example, in Romans 5.1, a familiar passage, which is therefore having been justified by faith, dikaio, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. So it is the word for justified. The King James actually translates it that way, justified. So justified by the Spirit. So here we have Jesus justified by the Spirit. Justified means to be declared righteous. To be righteous means to be an upholder of God's law. So gaining some traction here as to what it means for Jesus to be vindicated would be for Jesus to be declared righteous, for Jesus to, to therefore be declared an upholder of God's law. And I'm not sure about you, Mike, but at first, when I hear that Jesus is justified, Jesus is declared righteous, that sounds strange. It does sound strange because I think about to be justified being sinners who are in need of a right relationship with a holy God, we need to be declared righteous. So why would Jesus need to be justified? Right. We typically think of ourselves as the ones who need to be justified and we're thankful for justification because of what he's done. But why would Jesus need to be declared righteous? Why, why, why declare Jesus righteous? Because he is righteous. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Captain Obvious over there, he's declared righteous because he is righteous which is fascinating and important and profound. Think about how Jesus said he is doing the things that he's going to do, like in Matthew chapter 3, to fulfill all righteousness. Mm -hmm. Or Matthew 5, he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Well, then it makes perfect sense that he is called, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, he is called Christ the righteous. Mm -hmm. So here we have Jesus, the upholder of God's law, who perfectly, personally, and perpetually kept the law as our substitute. And therefore, God does the the obvious. And I'm not trying to trivialize it. The obvious thing to do in God's court of law would be to to declare the righteous righteous. righteous. So for Jesus to be vindicated is for Jesus to be justified. This official legal declaration by God is that Jesus, the righteous, is in fact declared righteous. So when we talk about Jesus being declared righteous, when would that happen? You know, as you hear that, and our listeners might be thinking, when is that When is that taking place? Is that something that happened in eternity past, or is that something that happened in time and space? When was Jesus declared righteous? So or even, when was he vindicated? Sure. Even according to our text in 1 Timothy 3.16, vindicated by the Spirit It is universally agreed, and that's probably an overstatement because you can always find a bad apple, but essentially it's universally agreed that that's a reference to the resurrection. Hmm. So texts like Romans chapter 1 or even the one I just quoted, 1 Peter 3, 18, help us. Romans 1, 3, and 4, uh, verse 4 says, "According according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Hmm. So it is the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, according to that text. 1 Peter 3.18 ends by saying, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Mm. 
And so we have Jesus being declared righteous, being vindicated, if you will, at the resurrection. In fact, we could even say it a little bit more bluntly, a little bit more awkwardly, but for effect, it's actually important, as some have. They say Jesus' resurrection is his justification. Mm. Jesus' resurrection is his justification. So it is the resurrection that is God's official declaration that Jesus is, in fact, righteous. And this tells us some important things. It tells us, it informs us that Jesus' claims were not empty claims. He claimed to fulfill the law. Well, he actually did. And proof that he did is the fact that God raised him from the dead. God vindicated him. God declared him righteous. God justified him because he didn't just say he was going to do things and then not do them. He actually did these things. Right. Jesus, the substitute, he died for sinners in place of sinners. And so he did die, but he could not stay dead because he himself was not only not a sinner, wages of sin is death, he himself is altogether righteous. And so he had to be raised because he is none other than the righteous one. Right. Other important texts that would relate to this that I think of are texts like Acts 2.24. It was not possible for him to be held by mm-hmm. it, it being death. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that profound and interesting? It is. Not possible. Jesus could not stay dead. Right. Why? Well, we know based upon our text, because he is Jesus Christ, the righteous, the upholder of God's law, impossible for him to stay dead. It's amazing to think that he was raised because it was impossible for him to stay dead, because he was indeed the righteous one, the one who had fulfilled the law perfectly for us, and there was no other option. He had to be raised. That's right, for justice to be served, right? Right, yeah. Jesus even talked about this during his earthly ministry. John 8 is another text that would complement it. In John 8, 28, he's talking about being crucified, about being delivered up, raised up, crucifixion. And then in 8, 29, it says, and he who sent me is with me. So there's not abandonment. He has not left me alone. For I always do. Here's here's the reason he's not left him alone. Why is it that his father's not left him alone? For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Yeah. It is because he is the one who's perfectly obedient that his father would not leave him alone. He would not have him die. He would have him be raised, vindicated. God's official judicial act of justification is seen in the resurrection of Jesus. Yeah. So so an empty tomb equals vindication of Christ. Certainly evidence of vindication of Christ. So when we think of the empty tomb, that's that's a great way to put it, Mike. He were reminded he's righteous. He's the lawful filler. He could not stay dead. Yeah. So where else would we maybe see some support for this in the Bible? We've talked about a few passages here, but where else would you see the Bible support this vindication of Jesus? A couple of Old Testament texts would be helpful and maybe helpful yeah. for balance that we don't only find this as a New Testament yeah. reality. Isaiah 50 and Isaiah 53 would be a couple of really good ones. In Isaiah 50, verse 8, it says this. Now, again, I guess we should set it up. We're getting close to Isaiah 53, and everyone knows where that goes. We're talking about the servant, right. the suffering servant, who is none other than Christ the Lord. But in, in Isaiah 50, verse 8, it says, He who vindicates me is near. And there we have it. 
he who vindicates me in the Septuagint, a very similar word to our Greek word in First Timothy 3.16, mm-hmm. he who vindicates. So if we capture the context according to 50 verse 6 of Isaiah, it says this, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I've set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Mm-hmm. And I'm already thinking, he's saying, I know that there's going to be justice. Yeah. These things have been done to me, but wrongfully so, because he is the righteous. Yeah. But he volunteers as the substitute. Then in chapter 50, verse 8, he who vindicates, mm. dikaiosas, sounds familiar to dikaios yeah. from our, our text earlier. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Implied answer is no one. Mm-hmm. Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? In other words, nothing can stop this from happening. Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Mm. No one's no going one. to. He, he's the innocent one. He's the, the perfectly righteous one, the one who will be vindicated, and he knows it. Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. And we know that he's moving toward Isaiah 53, and in Isaiah 53, it will be this one, the righteous who will bring justification to the many, the ones he represents. Right, yeah. Which is wonderful and amazing. It's no wonder uh, the apostles use Isaiah 53 for so much of what they talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Then I do have a quotation here from Gregory Beale. There is a helpful article we can put in the show notes from him that's very brief and more scholarly, uh, but essentially saying the same things we're saying. So this is him speaking about Isaiah 53. The famous suffering servant passage of Isaiah 53 makes the same point conceptually, same point as Isaiah 50. Mm-hmm. And the Greek, the Greek Old Testament Septuagint specifies that God will justify the just one, the servant, from the wrongful legal persecution under which he will suffer, showing him to be absolutely righteous after all. This vindication consists in causing the servant to enjoy victory even after and despite his own death. I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong. Though he would die, he would be given this victory, which includes seeing life after his painful death. He will see his seed. He will prolong his days. He will see light. Mm. In other words, there will absolutely, most certainly be resurrection. Yeah. He will be vindicated. Yeah, it's so awesome. It's amazing to see, even in the Old Testament, a looking forward to the vindication of Jesus. It's amazing. Going back to an earlier podcast, it's as if the whole Bible is Christian scripture. You know, I was thinking the same thing. It's like there was some kind of plan, a purpose <laughs> set forth. Oh, One awesome. divine author controlling all the human authors. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. So let's keep going here with uh, vindication. And maybe we could talk a little bit, uh, as our listeners are hearing us talk about vindication and how Jesus was vindicated, why, and where we see that in the Scripture. But maybe we talk a little bit about how does this relate to us as believers? Why Why should we be encouraging our listeners to care and understand that Jesus was vindicated? How does it relate? Our greatest desire, our greatest need, even if we don't know it, 
is that we one day would be vindicated. Yeah. Or maybe I should say that we would be vindicated, mm -hmm. that God would not find any fault with us, yeah. that God would, to put it more positively, see us as righteous. Yeah. But as we know, according to Romans 3, we're not righteous. Yeah. We have not kept God's law. We've not loved neighbor as we should. We've not loved God as we should. And so how in the world, it begs the question, how in the world can we plan to be vindicated? How in the world can we be vindicated or declared righteous when we, unlike Christ, are not in fact righteous? Right. And so how does this, how does this relate to us? Well, it relates to us because the Bible explicitly tells us that he did what he did for us yeah. as our substitute. And so I would encourage people to not only know First Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, but to connect the dots, as it were, to Romans chapter 4. Mm -hmm. And in Romans 4, we hear these great words in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, raised for our justification, mm -hmm. raised for our justification. In other words, raised for our vindication, being declared righteous, obeyers of God's law. We are not. Right. But the one who is did what he did for us. For us, yeah. So Romans 4 even calls for maybe a closer look at the context, but I wanted to single out those four words because uh, they're so wonderful, raised for our justification. So he's raised for his justification. No, we should even better say it. He's by being raised, he is justified. His mm -hmm. resurrection is his justification, but he does what he does for us, for our justification. Yeah. So let's go back to Romans 4.22, where it says, that is why his, Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. So Abraham is not himself righteous, mm -hmm. but he's trusting in something outside of himself so that he might be seen as a law keeper, righteous, even though mm -hmm. he isn't. Then verse 23 says, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also, it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus, our Lord, his vindication, we've learned, who was delivered up for our trespasses, our violations of the law and raised for our justification, raised for our vindication, being declared righteous as if we were obeyers of God's law, even though we're not, Jesus is raised for us in that sense. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. It has huge implications for us then as believers. And the biggest implication, I would say, is the fact that we can have such a thing as sola fide. Yeah. We can have justification by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone. Mm -hmm. It is because of what he has done. It's because he is righteous, and so he's been raised, he's been declared righteous, and that's for us who are not righteous, but right. it's to our benefit, guaranteeing us no condemnation. Why? Because we're in Christ. Yeah. Romans 8 is so fascinating when it comes to this. There is therefore now no condemnation. Hmm. I don't know about you, but uh, it puzzles me in one sense how it can be. There is therefore now yeah. no condemnation. Because condemnation is a judgment um, word. It's talking about standing before God, the judge, and we're either going to be justified, declared righteous or condemned because God sees us for who we are. Mm. How in the world can he say there is therefore now no condemnation if we're in Christ? I guess I'm answering the question. Right, right. It's because we're in Christ. Yeah. But what's so fascinating is the apostle Paul takes the future and he brings it into the here and now. Yeah. 
So he's talking about future judgment and he's able to say there is now no judgment. There is now no negative judgment, no condemnation. Why? Because we're in Christ. We're united to Christ. And his judgment, if you will, has already occurred. And God has, by resurrection, declared him righteous. So perhaps our listeners have never thought about this as we're trying to tease it out a little bit. But maybe we could put it this way. Justification views the future judgment event and brings it back into the now or the present. Mm. And so we, we can know what is going to happen on that final day because the apostle Paul is saying, because of what Christ has already done. Yeah. So it, I, I want to encourage people because maybe I was slow. I was so slow in my life and my Christian experience to think about these terms, justification, condemnation, it's talking about future, but it's bringing it into the here and now. That's impossible. It can't be unless the work has already been done by another, by a substitute, and we know that it has. Yeah. So we have the already not yet because of what Christ has accomplished. This was what, That's exactly right, and that's a good way to put it. This is exactly why the resurrection is so vital, yeah. probably more vital than we even imagine. Absolutely. Because it tells us the judgment has been taken care of. Not only in the negative, but in the positive, Jesus is righteous and he's righteous for us in our stead, in our standing. Regarding this future already not yet judgment thing, Gerhardus Voss is famous for these kinds of quotations and thinking this through, and I think rightfully so. Here's a great quote from Voss regarding this matter. The apostle made the act of justification to all intents, so far as the believer is concerned, a last judgment anticipated. Mm. So he's looking to the future, but he calls it in the here and now. Mm. Therefore, having been justified, we have peace with God. There is therefore now no condemnation. The resurrection, Mike, is better than we even thought. It really is. I mean, it's amazing the amount of encouragement, joy, peace, hope that we can have as you think about the resurrection and our future resurrection to come. Bigger implications than he walks with me and talks with me. Oh, yeah. And he walks with me and he talks. (laughs) And we digress. (laughs) And we digress in music ministry. I tell you, makes me want to sing. Well, let's move on and uh, let's talk now about uh, what, if possible, is there to not like about this? What's not to like about this is to not like the fact that it is promoting and defending and solidifying justification sola fide. Hmm. So if you're not a friend of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of the finished work of Christ alone, you're definitely not going to like this. So promoters of the so-called final justification view or a twofold justification Mm. like N.T. Wright, who is no friend of the gospel, uh, is going to say something like, well, you're justified initially by faith in Christ and maybe by faith alone, but there's a second justification. There's a final justification, and it's going to be based upon your works, Mm. your merits. And I want to go on record as saying, I simply don't buy it. I don't buy it because there is no potential for the justified to be condemned. I don't buy it because if we are raised with Christ, then we are justified. We are vindicated. I don't buy it because the very reality of justification is a future event brought into the present by virtue of our being united with Christ. And just so our listeners know, we're not the only ones who don't buy it. 
Uh, here's a quote from John Fesco, uh, where he says, Current explanations of the relationship between justification and the final judgment fall short because they fail to account for the judicial nature of the resurrection. They fail to see the paradigmatic nature of Christ's resurrection and recognize that as Christ was justified in his resurrection, so too the believer will be justified in his own resurrection. By maintaining the all-important connection between justification and resurrection, we preserve the sola gratia, solus Christus, and sola fide of justification, as believers are raised not because of their own works— but solely because of the works of Christ. Amen to that. John Fesco sounds like a Protestant. He does. <laughs> I think it's good when Protestants sound like Protestants. I also think it's good when you say words like paradigmatic. Paradigmatic. So it would behoove us <laughs> to make sure that we use words like paradigmatic. I'm just glad we don't have to say things like that to get to heaven yeah. or be justified. <laughs> and I also want to add to that and just say that Anything else that may occur on a future day of judgment will only complement this. Hmm. So whatever happens on that day, and I don't know all the details, I know some texts, but absolutely surely whatever is going to happen on that day, I doubt we'll be greeted by St. Peter at the door, but whatever happens on that day, it won't contradict what we've seen to already be true. One final good quotation along the same lines comes from Mike Horton, where he says, there is no final vindication or justification that is anything other than the verdict that has already been rendered in this present age. Mm -hmm. Super helpful. Mike, I think the irony in all of this, when it comes to what's not to like and people opposing these things, the irony is it seems to be motivated. uh, People who deny this seem to be motivated out of a desire to get people to obey. Right, yep. So here here we don't want people to know that justification comes freely because mm-hmm. of the work of another because if the word gets out they might not they may not do the right thing. Right, yep. What's fascinating about that is the apostle Paul addresses that very matter, but he addresses it in a way that may surprise some. Mm. In Colossians 3, he says, "If then you have been raised with Christ, The implication is we have. He's assuming that we have. We know that we have. If we've trusted in Christ, we've been raised with Christ. And we've been learning. If we've been raised with Christ, we've been justified. Right. He, through the resurrection, is declared righteous. He's justified. We're united to him by faith. And so we're justified. So if you have been raised with Christ, if you have been justified, because they're inseparable, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Yeah. So if you've been raised with Christ and you have, then you have been vindicated. Future judgment has already been addressed. Do the right thing. Yeah. But he's calling us to do the right thing out of a position of safety, yeah. not of fear of condemnation. Right. And I was honestly just speaking with someone this week who talked about how they had previously lived in such a fear and a burden trying to do the right things in hopes of maintaining and attaining that final justification. And then they were just amazed at the freedom that's found in being in Christ and from that position of security, as you just said, doing the right thing, loving to obey and honor God with their life out of gratitude. And if we knew the basic Christian confession that we've started with, 1 Timothy 3.16, we would therefore be able to read Colossians 3 better. Yeah. 
So when we read resurrection, oh, I've been justified because yeah. I'm in Christ. Yeah. So do the right thing because I'm I'm safe. I don't have to be afraid of condemnation. Yeah. So maybe our listeners are thinking, and maybe others think this when they hear about this, where has this been? Where, why have I not heard this? I'm wondering the same thing. I'm not really sure. Maybe theological ignorance, biblical ignorance. Uh, maybe it's demonic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not really sure. But kidding aside, maybe it is demonic that we've lost sight of this. Mm-hmm. Because if our justification is not sure mm-hmm. in Christ, we're going to pursue it elsewhere. Right. We're going to pursue a right standing before God through other sorts of means. Yep. Which does bring us back to our text because right after, on the heels of 316, the Apostle Paul gives a stern warning about false teachers and demonic doctrine. And Mm. if we pursue being right with God through other means, then we're way off target. Mm. And so I do want to take time to read chapter 4, verses 1 to 7, and would encourage our listeners to do the same thing. He says, now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith. Mm. I think our confession shorthand in shorthand gives us an expression of the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons Mm. through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth, the truth about Christ, the truth about creation, the truth about how to be godly, how to be right with God. Mm the truth about justification, the truth about vindication. Then verse four, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths, rather train yourself for godliness. Mm. And I want to remind everyone, verse seven ends, rather train yourself for godliness. It ends sounding a whole lot like 316, where he talks about the mystery of godliness. How is it that we can be accepted by God? How can we know that we have a right relationship with God, that in the future we will be vindicated? Mm. Well, The way to know is to be in Christ by faith. Therefore, then you can be certain. The faith is about the person and work of Christ to be vindicated, to be justified. And seeking vindication through other means, we would have to say, is none other than demonic. So I say we, we recover what was once a common Christian confession. Absolutely. I think it's so helpful to talk about this and to be thinking about these things as believers. There's such encouragement. There's such hope uh, to be found as we consider vindication and vindication of Jesus, resurrection, our future resurrection. So I think we're about out of time. Let's go ahead and wrap up. You can find the resources we've mentioned in the show notes, and we will see you next time.